From Diamond Pharmacy Services, this is Podcast Rx. On this special two-part episode, clinical pharmacist supervisor Zane Gray and pharmacist Chris Bender from the Optics team join us for a look at drug shortages and the Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act. In part one, Zane discusses some of the current shortages of prescription and over-the-counter drugs affecting Diamond customers, the factors behind these shortages, and how Diamond ultimately helps clients and patients to work through them. And in part two, Chris lays out the tenets of the recently passed Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act, how it changes buprenorphine prescribing for opioid use disorder, and what positive effects the act could have on medication-assisted treatment programs in the correctional environment. I'm Adam Campbell, and thanks so much for listening to Podcast Rx. Well, no matter where you get your news, you've surely seen stories in the past few weeks of stressed parents going from pharmacy to pharmacy in search of the now elusive over-the-counter children's medications for pain and fever. Thanks to the so-called triple-demic of influenza, RSV, and COVID-19, the demand for these products has naturally skyrocketed, leaving many pharmacy shelves empty. Now, while these drug shortage stories from the community, understandably and rightly, get a lot of attention, drug shortages have been and continue to be an ongoing problem in all areas of healthcare. To get a sense of the impact drug shortages are having on the institutional clients served by Diamond, I've asked Zane Gray, clinical pharmacist supervisor for Diamond's Optics Clinical Pharmacy team, to join me and share his insights into what drugs are in short supply right now, why this is the case, and how his colleagues within Optics and Diamond help partners to manage these shortages. So Zane, welcome back to Podcast Rx. Always appreciate you taking the time to be here. Thank you for having me. So of course, Zane, you've seen the coverage I just talked about, but given the institutional focus of Diamond Pharmacy, I was curious, how are the drug shortages impacting everybody that you work with on a daily basis? What are, what are have been some of those prominent shortages that you've been dealing with lately in these spaces? Yes, we're currently dealing with many, many shortages right now. As you noted, these shortages range from both the over-the-counter products to the prescription products. Mm-hmm. Other prescription products... Uh, an unusual thing we're seeing is that it's both brand and generic products. Okay. Typically, you're primarily seeing this with generic products. Okay. Uh, the most prominent ones we're going um, going on right now uh, have a lot of vi- visibility are the over-the-counter drugs, such as the acetaminophen oral solution that you referenced, mm-hmm. or the cough and cold products. Um, sure. Prescription pr- drug products, though, could be something like an Adderall, you're seeing a lot of news on that. And also diabetes medication, you're seeing a lot with GLP-1 agonists such as Trulicity and Ozempic. Actually, I was just talking to my friend's dad over the weekend, and he was complaining about how he couldn't get his uh-huh. Ozempic filled. So it is a very prevalent thing yeah. going on. Yeah, and that's something we just talked about uh, two episodes ago with, with your with your colleague, Chris Bender, about the uh, shortages of, of the GLP-1 agonists. So definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, there's also a lot of un, not visible items, too, that go on. And that's mm-hmm. just because... You're not seeing them or our, our company, our, our groups we work with aren't seeing them because there's a lot of redundancy built into a lot of pharmaceutics, uh, pharmaceutical companies. So maybe there are a lot more, but you're just not seeing them. We're seeing them, but sure. our customers aren't. Right. What are the factors? What's causing these drug shortages that you're seeing? So likely what's happening is something multifactorial in nature. I'll try to provide a quick quick summary of like what are the different reasons why there could be a shortage um, mm-hmm. for a medication. Uh, they generally come from either manufacturing issues or some sort of external factor that's putting a stress on the current supply. Um, this could be from an increase in utilization, increase in demand, or maybe a regulatory change that came into the market which caused uh, increased utilization um, because of that. Um, and I do want to define drug shortage because 
people don't often what is the, the definition could differ based on who you're talking to. There really is no uni- universal definition of what a drug shortage is. Um, what I'm talking about is primarily what did we order? Did everything we order come in or did we get maybe shorted on that order? So we're mm-hmm. not able to pay, maybe fulfill an entire order if somebody would request it. Right. Um, or are we not able even to order it from the product, um, from the manufacturer or wholesaler? So that's gotcha. kind of like what I'm talking about when I'm talking about drug shortages. Okay. Manufacturing issues, um, when I talk about that, that could be primarily what I was see- we've been seeing is a lack of maybe um, active pharmaceutical ingredient, also known as API. I'm going to get very like nerdy with this right now, but basically like wh- what happened is API or the active drug in maybe a tablet or a capsule or in the oral solution is coming from, generally comes from maybe two countries. It's Mm -hmm. India and China. Um, So if they're, during the COVID-19 pandemic, getting the supply of this API into the United States became very difficult because whenever we saw everything being shut down here, things were also shutting down there. So they had API plants shut down, their ports shut down, so the United States could not ship in any of this API. so we couldn't make any more, couldn't make any drug. In the beginning, it wasn't that bad because there was a lot of excess product available. Um, there was a surplus in some of these manufacturing facilities in the United States. But as the pandemic continued on and these um, plants remained shut down, docks remained shut down, um, it was very difficult and all that excess um, API kind of ran out. So mm-hmm. that's why we're seeing a lot more drug shortages right now. Yeah, not totally unrelated to the other kind of consumer product shortages that we're seeing. A lot of the same reasons. Correct. Correct. Yeah. There was a surplus at the beginning. Now yep. there's now there isn't. Now there isn't. <laughs> Another issue could be that these manufacturers are also to kind of streamline everything are only using one or two sources of API. So if one source would go down, so one plant would go down, maybe because of contamination or something like that there caused a massive shortage for all manufacturers. So we're seeing like a broad, more broadening of uh, drug shortages in the United States. Um, And that caused, so typically we'd be able to switch back and forth between different manufacturers. Now we can't do that as easily anymore because there's just no no product in the marketplace at all. Another issue that I've recognized a lot more uh, is widespread, widespread drug recalls. So basically there's no product on the market because all the product got recalled for some reason or another. An example of this would be um, ranitidine, brand name Zantec, which was an acid-suppressing therapy um, for GI issues. It was entirely recalled from the United States, not even on the market anymore. Another big thing with this is whenever you pull that from the market, it put a lot of pressure on its all, the other main drug in the same class, then that caused a shortage of that. So there's a lot going on with that. Another one, even in the over-the-counter space, magnesium citrate oral solution. I get calls about it every week. What's going on with it? Uh, it's used to manage constipation. So it's a very like readily used medication with our clients mm-hmm. and our patients. Only a few facilities manufactured it. Basically, they just relabeled it for a lot of other people. And whenever their product got contaminated, they had to recall all of the product from the market. There, So there is no mag citrate on the market right now. So though it might be coming back as of right now, there's just none available in the United States. Is that um, like your milk of magnesia products, the, that the same thing? 
No, it'd be like um, it would be. It's just just like this this bottle that you get, and then you have to drink like the entire bottle for to relieve constipation, basically. Okay. <laughs> Trying to understand the yeah the the uh, over the counter component of that. Yeah, and then um, the next big cause of shortages could be external factors. So unexpected unexpected stress on our supplies. You have to remember that pharmaceutical manufacturers are trying to limit waste as much as possible. They're just like any other business in the United States. They're trying to limit waste, optimize profits. So they only manufacture what they project to sell. So the first reason something could change would be, an example would be a guideline change or some new medical literature that comes out. A good example of this was whenever Shingrix came to the market. Um, the They didn't expect that the FDA would change the recommendation to prioritize this vaccine and not only to prioritize the recommendation of this vaccine, but anyone that had to receive the previous vaccine that wasn't Shingrix for shingles was supposed to receive Shingrix now. They didn't expect that. So as soon as that happened and that recommendation happened, uh, there wasn't enough Shingrix on the market because they didn't expect they didn't account for that. So for mm-hmm. uh, like a year, six months, there was a huge manufacturer shortage of Shingrix in the marketplace. So people had to de- delay getting vaccinated mm-hmm. for shing- shingles. We also saw see a lot of changes due to technology and how prescribing happens. Healthcare trends go a lot faster now in the United States. So we're seeing like a lot more providers catch on to new therapies coming to the market, or also there's services that are coming out that kind of prioritize certain drugs um, and incentivize the prescribing of them. Mm-hmm. You'll see like commercials for services that allow like you can get an appointment right now for a doctor to see if you can get a certain medication, maybe like prescription medications for your hair, erectile dysfunction, things like that. Right. So whenever these come on, those are added stressors because, again, no one's accounting for them. There's technology coming in and it's ramping up the prescribing of these medications. So maybe something – so these manufacturers weren't ready for that. Yeah. So it's very, very interesting. Right. And no, no coincidence that the two – types of drugs you mentioned are kind of in the vanity space. Correct. Yes. Another unique situation is influencer culture or social media influence influencer culture on healthcare. We healthcare didn't really have to deal with this a lot until recently, but now you're seeing people that look just like you with the same conditions as you using products and they're able to give you direct feedback on how they, how the drug worked and what are the benefits to it. So it incentivizes the person to go and ask their doctor about it because they saw somebody using the product. Mm-hmm. Prior to this, you had to rely on like commercials to, uh, and some like expert or somebody just kind of explaining how this drug worked and recommending that you would talk to your doctor about it. Now you can see real people and get real f- feedback. A uh, big example of this has been with GLP-1 agonists, uh, medications like Ozempic and Trulicity, which we talked about already. They're very expensive brand products. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of benefits, especially in the diabetic patient population. and But now you're seeing a lot more being prescribed by doctors for, quote unquote, weight loss cures because of some side effects that you get whenever you prescribe these medications. Right. Um, and that's be, really being highlighted in the social media f- uh, influencer culture as a quick fix for weight loss. Um so a lot of patients now that you wouldn't normally expect to go see and talk to the doctor about this, because again, these manufacturing, these pharmaceutical companies can't advertise it for that. So it's right. entirely on social media where this these recommendations are coming from. 
Right. And if I, if I could just interject really quickly, if you want to listen to a longer form discussion about the GLP-1 agonists, so what Zane was just talking about, the off-label use, plus just how they generally work, do listen to Podcast Rx episode 36 with Chris Bender. All right. Continue, Zane. But the good thing with this is whenever these these things happen, they put added stress on to the pharmaceutical company. They do can adapt, and it will take – they did have noted that likely within six months of these shortages occurring, they're able to ramp up production and you shouldn't see this anymore because they're accounting for this increased volume that they're getting of, of prescriptions they're seeing. So Zane's shortages of, as we just said, shortages of consumer products are, are really a, a feature now of post-pandemic life. We think about them a lot more every day because that's just the reality of it. But Drug shortages, they aren't a new problem at all. Um, you've been with optics for upwards of a decade now. How does this recent spate of shortages compare with what you've seen in the past? Uh, drug shortages are definitely not a new thing. I remember doing presentations on them while I was uh, just a student on rotation in pharmacy school. Uh, I've been assisting with our purchasing department, managing them for seven or eight years now. Uh, this pandemic situation is very unique, though, because there's a lot of stress on manufacturers to supply products in very sensitive supply lines, as I've kind of talked about before. Right. I've never really seen this many recalls and different products being involved from over-the-counter stuff, which I generally never really saw. And all manufacturers for a generic product all coming back and saying there are the products on shortage or even brand medications, which is really unique because typically when they're coming to the market, they have a good idea of how much product they need to make. Right. Well, it, the extraordinary situation of the pandemic, no doubt, is resulting in these extraordinary things you're seeing. Yes, yes. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, Zane, could you talk about the specific strategies that the optics team takes to meet these drug shortages head on? You know, how do you help clients of ours through through them and keep them in the know? And what about the structure of optics makes it such an effective resource for this? So managing drug shortages really requires a lot of specialized skills and a ton of information before you can act. You need to know exactly what product is available, where you can order it from, how much you can get before you can make any decision on how to handle it. Uh, thankfully, Diamond has invested a lot of time and money into an, uh, updating their inventory management. So we've built out a lot of redundancy with our medication ordering. Um, if we identify maybe one product's not available, we can order an alternative pretty mm -hmm. quickly. Um, full transparency, the optics team, we don't order any of the medications, so I have to rely on our purchasing team and operations team whenever to implement things if I, we do have a drug shortage. Um, the opt optics team has worked with the operations team and purchasing team to build out a lot of like the redundancies we've talked about, especially in the over-the-counter over space because they don't have the AB rating um, that the brand medicate or the prescription medications have. So there's a lot more of nuance in what can be substituted, what is appropriate to be substituted for a non-prescription product. Uh, the, because of all the, building out all these redundancies and these operation workflows, uh, Diamond can provide alternatives in a much faster way than we previously could. Mm -hmm. which is good, which is why maybe like our, our customers aren't, and our patients aren't seeing as much shortage. They're seeing some, mm -hmm. but whenever they're occurring, they're usually huge drug shortages that are occurring. Additionally, if a medication goes really on a full back order or all manufacturers are gone 
for a certain medication, we have to communicate with our customers and our patients saying, this is what needs to be monitored. These are potential alternatives that aren't the same as this, but we, this is what we can offer you. Um, for example, when we encounter a shortage for a particular medication that happens to be a narrow therapeutic index drug, Diamond can't just start substituting for a different manufacturer. We have to notify everyone that this is occurring. We have to notify them what steps need to be taken from a monitoring standpoint um, for this. And we also have to tell them, is this going to be a constant thing, uh, this alternative we're supplying, or is this going to be a short-term thing and we're going to switch back to the preferred medica- the preferred manufacturer that we had? So there's just a lot that goes along with it that we have to communicate with drug shortages. Yeah, absolutely. And what are some notable examples of the alternative therapies that you talked a little bit about? Um, what, what are some of what are some notable examples of therapies that you're having to suggest lately with these drug shortages going on? Recommending shortages or alternatives for shortages can be difficult uh, because you can't account for every situation, every single patient, every single clinician. So maybe like a clinician doesn't have a comfort with maybe a medication that you're recommending. Um, I'll also note that in healthcare, we're creatures of habit. So again, that comes from the comfort level of the clinician um, about what they will switch to. Um, Some shocking shortages that we've run into, though, and alternatives we've had to recommend include even the disease states such as latent tuberculosis therapy, uh, hypoglycemia management, and seizure management. For example, Prifton went on uh, a shortage in allocation from its manufacturer. It only has one manufacturer at this time. So we've had patients that were maybe like halfway through being treated for a latent TB being told, now we can't supply your medication anymore. What, what do we do instead? And there's not a lot of information about what to do in these situations. So we had to contact specialists, see what they would do in these situations. Do we restart therapy from day one? Mm-hmm. Do we start just allow them to count that what how many therapy days of therapy they got before and continue midstream? Um, so there was just a lot going on, especially like what was available and what the patient could even be switched to. Um, for hypoglycemia management, we get this usually once a week is D50 or dextrose 50% vials and syringes just not being available. What can we do instead for these patients that are having hypoglycemic episodes? Uh, what are the next one? Um, we just had for acute seizure management, we don't have access to some um, injectable benzodiazepines here at Diamond. So we're really limiting what we have access to for our patients. So maybe we do have to recommend a high price brand medication potentially for this because there really is nothing else to use Mm -hmm. for that situation. So those are just some of the amount of shortages that we're dealing with right now. But either way, you, you, uh, you, you just the, the scenarios you described just show the importance of having clinical pharmacists on your side yeah, as your provider. Correct. They're not acute situations. These are acute situations, the ones I'm referencing right now. Mm-hmm. So that I can't you they're not chronic. I can't just look at the guidelines and recommend an alternative. There's things that they need now potentially to stock at a moment's notice. So these are some big ones. Yeah, for sure. All that said, Zane, how much of your your day-to-day work, your team's day-to-day work is spent either addressing or working through drug shortage scenarios? So I would say it's a daily situation that we're dealing with, um, especially because we assist in managing our 
dispensing process here at Diamond. So if we're identifying that something's being owed pretty frequently from a from the pharmacy dispensing software, we have to go and look and review, is this a drug shortage or is this something that just maybe just didn't come in on time to Diamond? Um, many people don't understand that maybe when a medication gets owed, that usually that's whenever we start identifying is a stroke shortage. What is, what is our process for that? Uh, do we have to start talking to our purchasing department about supplying an alternative thing? So it really is like a daily occurrence for us. I'd prefer it not to be, but it is <laughs> sure. it's just realistically what's going on. Um, we also have to deal with daily calls from facilities whenever they don't receive um, their medication in the mail or their medication uh, on their run for the day. They're like, where is this? What do we do now if you didn't come in? Um, so acute management of the patient at that point. Uh, complete manufacturer back orders that have no available interchangeable products are probably the worst ones to deal with and communicate because now I'm dealing in broad communication for them. So yeah. luckily those are still far few and far between, but whenever they occur, they are very tedious. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, this is just a, an, a quick question of curiosity, Zane. Um, given the the size of our client base, the the different, the many different types of patients that we serve, and, and in different settings, are are there a lot more niche medications that are in shortage too? Just from a volume standpoint, um, is that would it be accurate to say you're seeing more niche medications in a, in addition to everything else you talked about? I would say it's a mix. Um, for us, we do have a full service pharmacy solution for our customers. Um, so we do see different things. So whenever I'm on like a listserv and I'm seeing clinicians talk about drug shortages for certain medications, they might have like one or two patients on it. We've been dealing with it likely for six months at this point. Mm-hmm. So it's so we're just kind of getting ahead of like these drug shortages a lot of times. Um, so we already have a lot in place. But we do see like these just regular ones or these like nesh, less niche um Shortages like you see on the news, talking mm-hmm. about all the time. Yeah. Um, so it is It is really a mix. Yeah. And uh, to kind of end things on a hopefully positive note, uh, how, how do you think the drug shortage situation that we're currently experiencing is going to improve? Is it going to improve at all or is it just going to be this set of drugs for another? Uh, what's the general outlook at the moment? So I would I hope that it in, improves as the global pandemic kind of resolves itself Um I don't want to make any guesses about the global pharmaceutical supply because as we saw with a lot of products, IV products that were being manufactured in Puerto Rico, one bad storm can come and cause a whole shortage for different products. Um, I do expect that the world will continue to deal with somewhat increased level of medication shortages just because of the, how the supply lines are right now. Mm-hmm. We are like we do heavily focus on our sourcing of API in India and China. So as we focus, as we build out less redundancy in that supply line, there will be potentially more shortages. I hope it gets better, but it can always get bad again at any moment. Yeah. Well, let's hope and emphasis on hope that we don't see any events like you talked about, like <laughs> storms or disasters uh, and made otherwise in the near future. Zane Gray, thanks so much for being on Podcast Rx, and I hope to talk with you again soon. All right. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Podcast RX from Diamond Pharmacy Services. If you're a fan of the show and have any topics you'd like to hear us discuss, or if you have any thoughts on a particular episode you'd like to share, please email us at podcastrx at diamondpharmacy.com. And while you're at it, please rate and review our show wherever you get your podcasts. Your feedback helps us make the best show possible for you. And as always, we appreciate your feedback and support. Now back to the show. Well, I'd like to welcome back our Steady Eddie contributor, Chris Bender, back to Podcast RX. Chris, how are you today? Hey, Adam. I am doing very well. Hope you are as well. I just wanted to say it's always a pleasure speaking with you. And this time on such a quick turnaround, I feel like I was just talking to you um, on our GLP-1 Agonist episode. So as always, great to be here. And we're so glad to have you. And yes, very very quick turnaround indeed. And uh, today's episode is a full circle moment for you talking about appearances on the show because your very first appearance on podcast rx all the way back in episode five you talked to my colleague ashley fritz about medication assisted treatment for opioid use disorder or mat as we'll refer to it throughout the show you very concisely broke down and explained all the major treatments of mat uh, methadone buprenorphine naltrexone you explained the basic pharmacology associated controversies with each logistical challenges in the correctional environment and the regulatory hurdles It's this last area, regulatory hurdles, that we're going to focus on today, because at the very end of 2022, another MAT made headlines. Instead of medication-assisted treatment, this time it was the Mainstreaming Addiction Treatment Act. Passed by Congress in December as a provision of the Consolidation Appropriations Act for 2023, the MAT Act removed regulatory hurdles related to the prescribing of buprenorphine, recognized by many as the gold standard of opioid addiction treatments. Specifically, it removed a decades-old system of waiver registrations and patient limits that hamstrung the possibility of widespread buprenorphine prescribing. This easing of restrictions comes at a time when staggering numbers of Americans continue to die from drug overdose deaths, especially from opioids. Chris, the passage of this bill had strong bipartisan support and was widely lauded by many groups, not least the NCCHC. Given your front seat to corrections care, I definitely wanted to get your perspectives on the MAT Act passage and also use this opportunity to effectively make a sequel of sorts to your excellent medication-assisted treatment episode. So before I even ask you any questions, Chris, I want to play an excerpt from that original podcast episode from 2019. And for context, our host, Ashley Fritz, had shared the sentiment with you that overall access to MAT seemed to be going in a positive direction. And let's take a listen to what you said in response. Well, and that's the thing. I I do think that the DEA is also being a little bit more um, um, accepting of of, of feedback, um, entertaining some ideas to possibly increase access. I don't know any specifics in terms, but I think that in order to have the most impact, it would be, it'd be prudent to minimize the requirements for the XDE, the XDEA waiver, or just allow it to be prescribed off of a regular DEA number mm-hmm. or increase the limits of patients. Um, I sh- well, listening to that, Chris, it sounds like you got your wishes with the passage of the MAD Act. So let's let's dive into the tenets of the MAD Act. Chris, can you tell me, or can you give me rather, the full breakdown of the law, how exactly it changes what came before? And I'll ask the standard and simple question. Why is this such a big deal for patients and prescribers alike? Sure thing, Adam. Um, so the act itself, I should note up front, is, is actually fairly brief because it's essentially just canceling previous law. So... Mm-hmm. To better understand what it does, we really need to understand what the previous regulations were, you know, regarding buprenorphine prescribing. So 
before the MAT Act or MAT Act, what have you, the DEA licensed, um, well, DEA licensed prescribers had to apply for an X waiver via what was called a notification of intent um, to prescribe buprenorphine. Now, the traditional notification of intent pathway required prescribers to have undertaken a certain amount of training time. And this was eight hours for physicians and 24 hours for nurse practitioners and physician assistants, um, as well as they had to have had access uh, to provide other ancillary services in their clinic, such as counseling services. Um, and then once, you know, once they had their X waiver, prescribers were limited to treating only 100 patients at a time, but they could apply for a patient limit increase, uh, which would increase them to 275 patients after one year. Now, in 2021, we saw an easing of restrictions by which a prescriber could obtain an X waiver via what was called an alternative notification of intent, which essentially allowed them to bypass all of that training and those ancillary services requirements. However, the caveat was they would only be they would be limited to treating only 30 patients at a time, and they didn't have the ability to apply for higher patient limits. So, long story short. Under those previous regulations, there were training requirements, ancillary services requirements, and obviously those those notable patient limits. So, you know, moving into now, the, the MAT Act removes all of those federal requirements for prescribers to obtain an X waiver, um, essentially in order to prescribe buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid use disorder. So what it means is all prescribers with a valid DEA license may prescribe buprenorphine uh, without any patient limits. Now, this is obviously a huge deal for patients because, you know, it has the potential to dramatically expand access to opioid use disorder treatment. There have actually been many studies highlighting the need versus supply disparity uh, regarding buprenorphine access across the country. But one that I found that was probably the most telling was from 2020. And it showed that 40% of the counties in the United States did not have a single healthcare provider with an X waiver. And also in many cases, X waivered providers were not found in the areas where the need was the highest. So we've known this for a while, but there's clearly been a need for expanded access um, to buprenorphine across the country. Now, now, Chris, no. I have, yeah. oh, sorry, I have a quick mm -hmm. question here, just so I'm understanding correctly, now that they can prescribe the buprenorphine without the, the waiver um, and the limits, does this apply to all buprenorphine products, even the combo products as yes, well? It, okay. Yes, it does. It does count. Uh, it does apply to that as well. So all buprenorphine okay. products can be prescribed by any DEA licensed prescriber. Gotcha. So, you know, like I said, there was there was clearly this need and there, there's there's clearly a benefit from the patient perspective. But, you know, with that being said, you know, and I don't want to throw too much cold water our, on our enthusiasm here, because obviously there's a lot of reason to be enthusiastic in this case. But at the end of the day, we still need prescriber buy-in um, for this access to expand. So, yes, this removes the barriers for, pers or for, for providers to start prescribing buprenorphine for OUD or opioid use disorder. But, you know, Remember that back in 2021, we saw that easing of, restrict, uh, of restrictions, which made it easier for, for providers to get their X waiver. And while many providers felt that this was a positive step in the right direction, 
many and uh, many providers still cited the need for ongoing support, namely institutional support, as well as mentorship uh, from colleagues uh, as limiting factors. So, you know, as with anything in medicine, if providers aren't familiar or they're not comfortable prescribing something, you know, they likely won't. So that's that's why I think moving forward, ongoing prescriber education is going to be a key public initiative. Right. And it's hard to get, I would imagine it's hard to get mentorship when you're um, already so restricted in, in in the beginning. You know, you're not going to, you're going to have fewer providers that, that get to that step anyway. Right. Exactly. And it's all yeah. about knowing the right person. And 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 if you have, and mm-hmm. if you're exposed to colleagues who happen to have their ex-waiver and they have that expertise in that area. And another thing too is, is, is sometimes it can, you know, the act of reaching out to, to a colleague for mentorship can, be a bit, uh, you know, daunting in some cases as well. Oh, no doubt. And um, when you talk about ongoing prescriber education, I can I can only assume that you and your colleagues in the optics team are going to be instrumental uh, in that educational plan for this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're always, you know, we're always available. Uh, we're always willing and able to take calls, provide educational materials to our, you know, the providers, our clientele. Um, it's something that we do frequently. And before this, we always fielded those calls and 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 help providers in answering any questions. And I'm already noticing an uptick in in questions from our providers since that passage. So, you know, it heartens me that people are willing to contact us for for assistance. And like I said, we're always more than happy to provide it. Chris, the the press releases for the for the MAT Act or MAT Act were repeatedly referred to buprenorphine as the gold standard in OUD treatment. Can you do a quick review as to why they would be given at this designation? Yeah, so, you know, that's interesting to me. You know, I want to make clear that there's no true gold standard treatment for OUD, but obviously I can kind of understand why the media um, and journalists, what have you, may think of buprenorphine this way. So if you'll recall, you know, little plug back to our previous MAT podcast, we discuss, as you mentioned, three pharmacologic options. We have methadone, buprenorphine, and naltrexone. I want to stress that all three options can be great options in the right patient. So as a quick review, remember that methadone and buprenorphine are opioid agonists. So they are the ones that provide opioid effects. So these are usually the preferred options because they do a really good job of reducing cravings and they tend to keep patients in therapy um, for a lot longer than antagonist therapy, which our antagonist therapy is naltrexone. And when I say keeping patients in therapy for longer, I also mean that means subsequently keeping them off of illicit opioids for longer. And that's important to consider. Now, obviously that's not to say that naltrexone which is, a, you know, as a reminder, is an opioid blocker. It's not to say that that's an ineffective therapy. You know, in fact, naltrexone works particularly well in highly motivated patients who happen to have a desire uh, for treatment without the use of opioids. But I will say that we typically see methadone and buprenorphine used more frequently, particularly in patients with more severe OUD. So when comparing methadone and buprenorphine, Um, we really don't see any differences with regard to treatment effectiveness. So you could then ask the question, well, why, you know, the gold standard label on buprenorphine? Well, 
you know, I, if I had to guess, it's, it perhaps stems from the fact that buprenorphine tends to be a bit safer than methadone. Um, it's a bit easier to dose. It has fewer drug interactions. And possibly, you know, one of the most important things is it's usually more convenient for the patient to obtain. So buprenorphine, because it's only a partial agonist, um, meaning it doesn't stimulate the opioid receptor fully, you know, it doesn't have as high of a risk of respiratory depression as methadone does. Plus, it's not as prone to QT prolongation, which is a cardiovascular um, situation, and drug interactions as methadone is. And we also need to remember that in order for patients to receive methadone, they must make daily visits to an opioid treatment program, which can obviously, just from the sound of it, can be quite burdensome. So, you know, I guess from a primary care provider perspective, buprenorphine is usually the safer, less cumbersome choice. With that in mind, Chris, in your original MAT episode, you spoke about the difficulties of implementing MAT in the corrections environment. Um, for all the need for MAT programs in the correctional patient population, you also talked about the general difficulties that were there, things like staffing, logistics, security. And you also noted that buprenorphine was one of the most smuggled contraband items in jails and prisons. So again, with all that in mind, what kind of effect do you think the MAT Act will have on the expansion of MET-assisted treatment programs in jails and prisons now? Yeah, so, you know, prior to this act passing, I had already started noticing an increase in MAT programs among some of our clientele, which is obviously a really promising sign. So I think that the MAT Act will really only help to increase the treatment of OUD in the correctional setting. Um, one area of corrections in which I believe, you know, this will have the largest impact in is probably the small county jail setting. You know, these are often small facilities with limited access to providers. And, you know, in some cases, providers rotate through these smaller jails. And as we see in the in the community, you know, not all providers were you know, had their X waivers. So there have been instances where small county jails simply didn't have the ability to order buprenorphine for patients. But now it doesn't matter which provider happens to rotate through that particular day, or if that facility only has one provider, you know, anyone can prescribe buprenorphine. So that's why I think that those small jails are likely to benefit the most. And that's, you know, that's really important to consider, right? Um, because if you think about the average length of stay at the county jail level, it, it, you know, it's about 14 days. And in some cases, individuals may be in jail because of petty crimes that were secondary to their drug use. So if you think about it that way, by expanding access to OUD treatment in the small county jail setting, we may be able to get a patient started on treatment and send them home with a higher chance of success than they would have had previously. And to add to your point about small county jails, Chris, a, a recent article in Politico, and we'll link to that in the show notes, uh, this was about successful OUD treatment in Maine state prisons, has cited the following statistic, um, quote, about 2.3 million people are incarcerated in prisons each year, and 8 to 10 million people move through local jails. Roughly two-thirds of them have substance use disorder, yeah, substance use disorder, according to a 2010 study regularly cited by the federal government, and also linked to that study in the show notes as well. But yeah, I think what you said is pretty spot on based on that yeah. number alone. Yeah, it's a, it's a very big potential to catch people where they are, or not catch, catch people in a, you know, in, in a negative way, but we're, we're able mm -hmm. to identify, uh, identify people. And, and it really helps to 
kind of strengthen that whole linkage and continuity of care concept that we try to promote yeah. so heavily in the medical field. Um, right. So it's really a, a great arena, um, much like we've, we've spoken about with vaccination, you know, in yeah. our previous podcast, it's a great patient population where you can have a really positive impact, not just in the correctional facility, but also in the community as a whole, because most of the times these individuals go back into the community. Right. And and for uh, some additional perspective on the continuity of care, um, the NCCHC and, and their official response to the passage of the of the MAT Act, they noted that, quote, people leaving jail and prison without receiving MAT have up to 40 times higher risk of dying from overdose in the first two weeks following their discharge than the general population, you know, 40 times higher. That's that's staggering. So, yeah, as you yeah. said, any any steps to facilitate treatment while incarcerated are huge, along with that then easier access to buprenorphine out in the community, which undoubtedly will happen. Yeah, and you have to think about it too from the correctional facilities perspective. Obviously, um, obviously, you know, overdose rates after release are the biggest, you know, the the biggest issue, but also too from a logistical standpoint, recidivism recidivism rates are significantly higher. Um, you know, after after leaving facilities. So meaning, you know, without adequate treatment, these patients, these individuals have a higher rate of returning to the facility. So from a correctional facility standpoint, you can actually improve your, you know, lighten your load, so to speak, by adequately treating patients while they're in your facility. So in the hopes that they don't come, you know, don't have to come back to your facility in the future. Chris, another requirement that changed with the MAT Act is the training requirements for providers. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, so, you know, as with anything in life, there's a little give and a little little take going on. Um, on the one hand, the MAT Act removed all of the regulations and expanded access to buprenorphine, all, all of the good stuff, which was great. On the other hand, the companion piece, the MATE Act or MATE Act, mandates that all prescribers, in order to either obtain a DEA license or to even to renew their existing DEA license, that they have to participate in a one-time eight-hour educational course on treating and managing patients with opioid and other substance use disorders. That goes on to say, um, unless that prescriber is otherwise qualified, you know, we don't necessarily know what that's going to mean um, at this time. You know, unfortunately, at this time, we don't have many other details on, on this whole thing other than to say that these training requirements will go into effect on June 21st of 2023. So coming up in the in the not too distant future. Yeah, and hopefully, of course, sooner rather than later, you'll get some guidance on that. Yeah, so one thing, you know, one thing I would add though, um, just, just for all of our listeners out there to be aware of this, uh, this one-time training um, will apply for all DEA licensees, regardless of whether or not they anticipate that they will be prescribing buprenorphine in, in the future. Um, this is this is basically in a way just to make all providers aware, um, you know, with with the growing opioid epidemic and also other substance use disorders across across the country. It is just a good way to kind of familiarize all providers, regardless of whether or not they're going to be actively treating um, substance use disorder or opioid use disorder, kind of familiarizing them with the treatment landscape. Chris, when you were breaking down the the um, the initial tenets of the Bad Act, you. You also detailed how it kind of there were baby steps between now uh, or between like 2021 and now where you saw basically a general easing of restrictions. 
And I wanted to ask you, do you think the passage of the MAT Act will inspire any lowering or, or loosening of the regulatory hurdles that surround other treatments for OUD, like methadone, for instance? Is there anything in the works that you know of? Yeah. So as I, as I briefly mentioned earlier, you know, one of the biggest hurdles with methadone has always been the fact that, you know, patients have to go to a methadone clinic on a daily basis to get their medication. Um, you know, there have always been potential, you know, there's always been some potential for patients to receive, you know, what they call take-home doses that depended on their level of sobriety, but these were always very limited. I'm talking days uh, of, you know, you know, singular days of take-home doses, you know, and that doesn't provide all that much flexibility. But during the COVID-19 pandemic, methadone clinics have actually been permitted, things have been a lot looser during the pandemic, um, methadone clinics have actually been permitted to dispense up to 28 days of take-home methadone to quote-unquote stable patients and 14 days of take-home methadone to quote-unquote less stable patients. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because it's been so successful that this policy has been extended to last up to one year past the end of the COVID-19 public health emergency, which oddly enough, um, I believe I heard this morning, um, that may be coming to an end of in May of this year. So this easing of restrictions um, around methadone will last until May of 2024, potentially. And the success of this, um, of I don't know what you want to call it, this program or you know of these easing of restrictions, has actually led SAMHSA, which of note they're sort of the governing body of all things related to substance use disorder in the U.S. It actually led SAMHSA to make um, some new proposals that would expand access to methadone, um, such as loosening restrictions with regard to who qualifies for methadone treatment. Um, because I'll just I'll just note here that patient eligibility criteria can be quite strict as to who can enter uh, or or enroll in you know opioid treatment programs for methadone, um, as well as they propose an increased access to take home doses, probably you know akin to what we're seeing. Um, currently with the whole 28 days and 14 days of take-home doses, depending on, you know, the patient status. You know, granted, you know, these SAMHSA proposals have yet to become law. And of course, those loosened pandemic restri uh, restrictions are only temporary. Um, but with that said, it's still promising to see that there's possible movement, you know, with regard to, to methadone as well. And I do think, um, you know, a lot of the research surrounding this has shown that there hasn't been negative outcomes associated with this loosening of restrictions. So I, you know, this is all just totally conjecture, but but it seems likely that we could see some permanent, um, you know, some of these, you know, some of these loosenings of restrictions to become more permanent, which would be fantastic from an accessibility standpoint. Yeah, no doubt. Now, Chris, the the last question I want to ask you today relates to stigma around the around these treatments. And when you talked about medication assisted treatment in episode five, you you addressed a lot of the criticisms surrounding surrounding medication assisted treatment. And something that you noted, and I'm I'm just paraphrasing here, that your response to those criticisms was to say that MAT was not a way to facilitate someone's party but it was a practical, clinically proven way to save lives and free people from addiction. Do you think the MAT Act will have an effect on the negative perceptions of buprenorphine or of MAT in general? 
Yeah, I think I think that's such an important question and, and something that's going to be important culturally, um, you know, moving forward in the years to come. And ultimately, I think that it will, um, you know, for a couple of reasons. First, as with anything, you know, we as a people, we tend to become desensitized to things, usually the more that we're, you know, usually the more that we're exposed to them. So if buprenorphine treatment or OUD treatment in general becomes more widespread and, and people see more of their friends, their family, et cetera, starting to seek treatment and, and have success with, with treatment, I think it's going to become something more akin to, say, someone taking an SSRI for depression or anxiety. You know, it's just something that people do that helps them lead a healthier, more productive life. And second, you know, I think ultimately the hope is with, you know, with the, the MAT Act is that we see more primary care physicians prescribing these medications. And what this means is that individuals won't have to go to specialized addiction medicine clinics, which, you know, has historically often been the case. And, I, you know, I want you, I want our listeners just to think about the stigma that the term methadone clinic has had in, in our public psyche, uh, on our public psyche for decades. You know, knowing that someone is seeking care at an addiction medicine clinic may certainly conjure up a more negative image than if that person were seeking care at their primary care clinic, their family doctor. So again, I think that by increasing exposure as well as the location of care, we can really take addiction treatment from being a thing that people do in the dark and just start to treat it as we do with any other chronic disease, you know, with care and with dignity. And you can't have enough of those two things. Chris yeah. Bender, I want to thank you again for being on Podcast RX. Uh, yeah, you know, I know we'll be talking to you again very, very soon about about another timely topic, uh, I'm yeah. sure. And um, I do also, again, want to recommend to the listeners to go back and listen to Chris's debut appearance on this show, Episode 5, Medication-Assisted Treatment, because this is a it's, it's a great companion to what he just talked about here. Yeah, some of the info is going to be a little outdated now, but everything else that he talks about, um, you know, the pharmacology of all these of all these treatment options is essential listening if you've if you're not at all familiar with them so do do go back and check that episode out and uh and adam i just wanted to say thank you for putting this together i mean it's obviously a very timely topic but it's obviously a very it's also a very important topic it's it's great to get the word out there and and kind of you know dispel any any you know any other misinformation around it or, or giving people the you know the information that they need you know to use this in their everyday lives so I'm always happy to to join you and, and I'm looking forward to coming back again, um, which will be, you know, sooner rather than later. So thank yeah. you. <laughs> Likewise, Chris. And, and of course, my pleasure. And yeah, look forward to our next talk. This podcast features conversations with healthcare professionals. Their statements and opinions discussed herein are for informational purposes only. This podcast should not be considered professional medical advice and should not be used as a substitute for the advice of an appropriately qualified and licensed healthcare professional. Therefore, listeners must not rely on the statements made herein. Podcast RX is a production of Diamond Pharmacy Services, the nation's largest correctional pharmacy provider. Catch our new episodes on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate the show and leave us a review. 
And if you have a topic you'd like to hear about on the show or you'd like to share your thoughts on an episode, you can email us at podcastrx at diamondpharmacy.com.